earlier this month, a tragedy occurred at a large baptism service for 80 people in a lake in southern Ethiopia. The pastor of the church was a, was 45-year-old Dojo Esheti, and he had just baptized one person when a crocodile leapt from the water and savagely attacked him, biting his legs and back and hands. Nearby fishermen and other residents tried to rescue him, but although they prevented the crocodile from taking the pastor's body way into the lake, they were tragically unable to save his life. Because this guy, Shetty, had already died of his injuries. I read that just last month. It was earlier this month. And it was a terrible, a terrible report to read of somebody losing their life serving God. (coughs) Now, thankfully, baptism services in Ireland are not as dangerous. Okay? We haven't lost anybody yet. Please do not let that put you off from getting baptized if you want it. And the only crocodile I've ever seen in Ireland is in the, uh, the, the National Reptile Zoo out in Gowran. I don't know if anybody else has been there, but it's an amazing place. If you want to go there, I'd highly recommend it. But that doesn't mean that following Jesus in Ireland is not dangerous. The Apostle Peter, he'd experienced firsthand some of the dangers of being a Christian. By the time that he wrote this letter, he'd been arrested, he'd been threatened, he'd been flogged, and he'd escaped beheading only through angelic intervention. And he would be executed a few years after writing this letter. But as Peter got to the end of his letter, 1 Peter, it was a different thread that was at the forefront of Peter's mind. Not a threat from wild animals or from evil empires, but from somebody far more dangerous. And so he wrote to urge his readers to follow Christ in battle. And we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. Just a few verses. Verse 8 down to verse 11. Or nearly at the, at the end of this amazing letter. And we're going to just read this passage now. So 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power, forever and ever. Peter started this section with a call to be vigilant, to be self-controlled and alert. To be self-controlled, it literally means to be sober-minded, to be clear-headed, to be calm and controlled in our thinking. And then to be alert is about being awake, being constantly watching. 
And this is something that's clearly on Peter's mind as he writes this letter, because he's already mentioned this kind of thing twice. This is the third time that he's urged his readers into this kind of mindset. The first time he wrote this, it was a call to gird up your loins or prepare your minds for action. To pull our thoughts together so that we are prepared for the challenges of the life that God had called them to. The second time that he wrote that, it was to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. In the light of Jesus' soon return, they need to be able to think rationally and clearly so they could draw near to God in prayer and ask Him for the help of Him. But here, it's a call to be clear-minded and vigilant because they're in real danger. In danger from the one Peter calls your enemy. Now, for Peter's readers, there could be many people that would have fitted that description. Peter was writing to slaves who were getting unjustly beaten by their masters. Well, you could have described them as an enemy. Or he was also writing to Christians who were being criticized and accused and attacked by others simply because of their faith in Jesus. Well, surely they would have been dying. And he was also writing in the time of the Emperor Nero, whose war against Christianity was only just beginning. Was he not writing? Peter wasn't thinking about any of those kind of people. Instead, he saw behind all of their suffering and their persecution the work of their true enemy, the devil. Now this word, the devil, has the idea of just of, a, of the idea of a slander. Somebody speaks badly against somebody. And the word Peter used here for your enemy has the idea of being a legal adversary. Someone who stands and accuses you in a court. So both of these words reflect the Old Testament picture of Satan as the accuser of God's people. Don't know if you remember back in the book of Job. Remember Satan? What he did when he accused Job of selfish motives in serving God. Job chapter 1. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? But stretch out your hand and stretch everything he has and he will surely crush you to your face. Satan accused Job of just being in it for himself. Look, it's just because you've given them a great life. That's the only reason why you're serving God. Of course, God allowed Satan to attack Job. But Job continues to be faithful to his God. But Satan continues to point the finger of accusation against God's people. So much so that in Revelation chapter 12, John calls Satan the accuser of our The one who accuses them before God day and night. That's what Satan does. He points the finger and says, some Christian here, 
Who do you think you are? How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus and be like this? Or like this? This is such a crucial truth that we need to remember. Yes, we might be criticized or ridiculed or ostracized by other people. Maybe even in our family or our workplace or our community. But those people are not the enemy that we need to focus on. It's a we need to focus on the reality that our battle is against Satan and his unseen forces of evil. Ephesians chapter 6 says this Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we need to be ready for this battle and alert for this enemy. Because this enemy is dangerous. Verse 8 again, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to do that. Peter used a, a very common Old Testament picture here. In the Psalms, the wicked are often described as lions. That was was in part because of the ferocious attacks. For example, Psalm 7 says this, O Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save me, save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. That's what the wicked are like. They're ready to rip them to apart and he's desperate for God to save them. But the wicked are also seen as lions for another reason. Not just for their ferocious attacks, but also, also for their stealth. For the fact they're lying in wait, in ambush, ready to pass. So Psalm 10, he lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. And I think maybe Peter had both of these pictures in mind when he wrote that the devil is like a roaring lion. He knew that sometimes the devil prowls around openly roaring and attacking God's people. Sometimes his attack is head on and obvious. So the Roman, the Roman Empire at times openly and cruelly attacked the Christian community. Sometimes by actual lines in the Roman Colosseum. And this direct attack still continues today. But other times, the devil lies in ambush, hiding himself under cover, maybe under the cover of false prophets, who, who stand and, and seem to preach a nice message. Message of hope, but a message of love. And yet their distortion of the truth is no less dangerous. This is what Paul wrote about Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He pretends to come with message of light and hope and life. And yet his impact is. 
But it's the evidence of this today. But so many lies being shared, even by those who claim to follow Christ. So whether we are aware of it or not, we are all in a spiritual battle against the dangerous enemy. Satan is out to distract us, to deceive us, to devour us, to destroy us. So we mustn't be asleep or unaware. We need to be clear-headed and vigilant. But that doesn't mean we need to cower in a corner, paralyzed in fear of the evil one's attacks. That's not what Peter wants these Christians to do. So Peter called these Christians to be resilient. He says, resist him. Resist him. This is what Jesus did in the desert. Each time Satan brought his accusations and his temptations, Jesus didn't retreat in fear. Instead, he stood his ground and resisted the devil in the power of God's word. It is written, he said. It is also written. It is written. And we are called to do the same. To follow in Jesus' footsteps and resist the devil. So James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to reject his temptations. We need to resist his enticements and refuse to give in under his threats. And of course we know that we can't do this in our own strength. But rather we need to be standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the faith. We will only be able to resist the devil if we are submitting to God, if we're following his word, if we're trusting in his power and relying on his protection. But if we're doing that, we don't need to give in. We don't need to give up. We can stand against the attacks of the evil one. This is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. You don't need to retreat if you're standing in the power of God. I'm sure you know that this isn't easy. Standing in faith under attack. It's difficult. It's challenging. And Peter gave us an amazing encouragement here in verse 9. He said, We can resist the devil because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Something in our sufferings we can feel so we can feel as if all the other Christians around, they are doing so much better than I am. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody really understands. Nobody struggles like I do. And nobody can sympathize. But Peter said here, this is simply not true. 
If we are suffering under the attacks of the devil, then we are not alone in that battle. Because Christians all over this world are suffering in similar ways. As Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. This means that if we are experiencing temptations, or struggles, or difficulties, or suffering, then we shouldn't see it as something that's strange or something that's surprising. Neither do these things come into our lives because of a lack of faith or a lack of commitment to God. Instead, they come into our life because of our commitment to God. And they are simply part of what it means to be a saint and a stranger in this world. And I think this means that we don't need to be discouraged by it. Rather than we can, we can see the temptations, the struggles, the, the reality of this spiritual battle in our lives, we can see it as reminders that we do not belong to this world. Rather we belong to the family of God through faith in Jesus. And it also means that we have a family who understands our struggles, who can sympathize with us in our suffering, and who can stand with us, united in our common striving against evil. We're all in this battle together. And so that we can encourage one another and build each other. Let's not go away and try and live this battle and fight this battle alone. We're in it together so we can encourage and share with each other and stand with each other. The battle against evil is fierce. It requires vigilance and resilience and encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Peter doesn't want us to think that the outcome of this battle is doubt. Instead, he called us to be confident of our victory. Look at verse 10, this amazing verse. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Despite how dangerous and deceptive our enemy is, despite how weak and vulnerable we may feel, Peter was sure that we will overcome. He said that we will be restored this means to be put in order to be made right it is saying that the work of transforming our lives will be completed one day we will stand before God completely perfect and holy in the sight there are many days that just sounds impossible and yet this is the promise of God 
But Peter also said that we will be made strong, firm and steadfast. Despite the storm of opposition and persecution and temptation we're facing, Peter was confident that ultimately we will be rock solid in our standing. We will be immovable and resolved in our faith. And we will be unwavering in our commitment to God. It's an amazing declaration of certainty and of assurance. But why could Peter be so confident? Why was he so sure of our final victory? Well, first of all, he was confident in God's grace. Because he is the God of all grace. Previously in his life, Peter had been confident in himself. But in the heat of battle, in the courtyard of the high priest, he had just crumpled into three disastrous denials. But that wasn't the end of Peter's story. Instead, after breakfast on a beach, Peter experienced the outrageous grace of God as he was restored not only to fellowship with Christ, but also to effective service for him. We're going to start exactly the same thing. If it was up to us, if it was up to our goodness, our righteousness, our strength, then victory over sin and evil would be disastrous, would be impossible. There would be no cause for confidence. Because we too, we know all too well our sinful nature and our tendency to our victory is assured because it's by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast this morning we can be confident because no matter who we are or what we face God has been clear my grace is sufficient God's grace is enough. God's grace is sufficient. We will never experience a battle, a struggle, a temptation, a difficulty where our problems outweigh God's grace. God's grace is always going to be enough. So first of all, we can be confident in God's grace. Secondly, confident in God's call. Throughout this letter, Peter has emphasized God's call on us that we belong to him as people, as his people. He started this letter by writing to God's elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. This is God's decision, God's choice. God called us. Then in 1 Peter 2 and 9, he said that we were called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Emphasizing his rescue from uh, our rescue from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Then later in chapter 2 he said that we were called to suffer. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
here in the passage in verse 10 Peter declared this call is a call to glory if we are in Christ today if we have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour then God has called us not just to be his people or a member of his kingdom or a follower of his son during our time here on earth but he's called us to experience and enjoy the magnificence of his glory in heaven this is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and 30 those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined he called those he called he justified those he justified he glorified now don't worry if these concepts blow your mind I see that in some of your faces none of us fully get this as one of these verses or two of these verses you just kind of try to drink in rather than completely understand and explain and tease apart but what these scriptures are saying is that God's call on our life is 100% effective because those that God called are the same people that God justified declared righteous and sight for all eternity and those he declared righteous in his sight those he justified he will also glorify and it's so sure and so certain that Paul even writes that they're looking at past tense that's already happened if we've been called if we've been justified then we will also be glorified because God's call on our life is 100% effective and his call is to eternal glory and nothing in the world can stop that from happening because God is the one who is perfect but of course we don't experience the fullness of that glory yet we're not there yet we struggle and suffer in our lives we grow as as if we wait for heaven Again, that doesn't need to shake your confidence. As if something's gone wrong with God's plan. Because the struggles that we go through, they might not be what we want. They might not be what other people tell us that we should experience as Christians. But those struggles, they're part of God's plan. See what Peter said in verse 10? He said that the eternal glory comes after you've suffered a little while this is God's plan for our lives just as it was for Jesus we'll see this right throughout the book of uh, First Peter suffering now glory to God but of course the suffering and the glory are not equal in magnitude and duration are they or as Paul writes our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far away is Yes, our suffering to be intense and in our lives it feels like it lasts forever. 
but compared to the enormity, the magnificence of the glory to come and the length of eternity, they are light. That's God's plan. Suffering now. But definite, a certain, sure, certain glory And so, no matter how difficult it seems that we would be victorious, we can be confident because our confidence is in God's power. It is the God of all grace who will Himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Our overcoming or the attack of Satan and our ultimate victory over sin and death is not dependent on us. Rather, it's in God's hands. He himself will do this work of restoration in our lives. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath you. One day, Jesus' victory on the cross will be fully revealed in our lives. And so just as our calling and our conversion was the result of God's work in our lives, through His love, through His power, through His grace, so the continuation and the completion of our salvation is the result of God's work in our lives. So today we can be confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So do you notice how Paul or Peter finished this section? About the rays of Christ, they just burst out in praise. Thanks. To him be the glory. To him be the power. Forever and ever. Amen. So yesterday we need to be vigilant. Because we are in a battle against a powerful enemy. We need to be resilient and stand in faith against his attacks and his temptations. And we need to encourage each other as we, we face the same struggles. But we do not need to be afraid. Because we can be confident in God's grace, in God's call, in God's plan, and in God's power. So today, right in the middle of this battle, right in the middle of this struggle, we can rejoice. And we can give God all the praise and all the honour and all the glory that He alone deserves. Because through Christ and the sacrificial death of the cross, our salvation is secure. And our shame in His glory is guaranteed.